If you brought a Bible with you this morning, I would invite you to find Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8, otherwise we'll be putting the scripture up there for you. And give it a little context uh, before we jump into where we left off last night, or last night, last week, that is. I was in this last night, for what it's worth. Uh, Romans chapter 8 and verse 1 says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set us free from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh. And for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk Not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. And now we pick it up where you're looking up on the screen. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. To set the mind on the flesh is death. But to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. For it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are of the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not of the flesh, but of the Spirit. If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you, and he's assuming by the verbiage here that he does, I'm not assuming that, but Paul is sort of assuming these individuals have the Spirit of God living in them. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ in him doesn't belong to him. That's a thought, isn't it? But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, and we've been looking at that over the last several weeks, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. That is the righteousness of Jesus applied to the sinner who places his or her faith in him. If the Spirit of him, verse 11, who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the spirit you put to death, or literally you are putting to death continually, The deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are the sons of God. And that's as far as we're going to get this morning. Having just returned from Chicago and Founders Week at Moody Church, uh, the church was celebrating its 150th anniversary, and they were celebrating Dwight L. Moody's 177th birthday. You did too, right? If you've never read a biography of of D.L. Moody, you should. You'll be greatly encouraged. He was a man, a passionate evangelist, with a great passion for understanding what it meant to be led by God, and particularly by the Spirit of God. Now, D.L. Moody was not an educated man. In fact, he was an uneducated man. He was literally lampooned by newspaper columnists. And others, even other speakers who made fun of him because he mispronounced words. 
But Scripture literally poured from his pores as this man was saturated with the Word of God. And thousands and thousands of people came to Christ under his ministry. He had a fascination with other pastors. And in fact, he so admired Charles Haddon Spurgeon, he traveled to the other side of the ocean to go to England and to London to sit under the ministry of Spurgeon. I'll come back to that. Spurgeon, or rather, Moody was so popular that in one community outreach, the local ministerial association got together and they determined, let's have D.L. Moody preach for us because people come to Christ whenever he preaches. And some jealous preacher out there said, well, does D.L. Moody have a monopoly on the Holy Spirit? To which some wag responded, no, but apparently the Holy Spirit has a monopoly on D.L. Moody. A great return, I might add. An even greater reality of the possibility of the Spirit of God monopolizing our lives. And we are talking about him in Romans chapter 8, being led by him. As I went to bed last night, I was just thinking about being led by God and being led by the Holy Spirit. And most of the times, they're very subtle things, not things even probably worth talking about. Other times, very obvious. And I'm just thinking just in the life of my time here at this church, and I was thinking about this time I was in a coffee shop. You know, what else is new? Uh, But this coffee shop is closed down several years ago. But I was sitting at this coffee shop and looked across, and here's this new mother with her little boy, her only little boy. And, and this new mother, who I'd never met before, was in a complete quandary. She was struggling with what to do next. She had read the Left Behind series a year or so earlier and had been saved just by reading the Left Behind series. She, she understood the gospel and she'd received Christ, but she and her husband were in liberal churches and sort of flitting around to different churches. And her husband was not a, was not a Christian and so she was, they had just left a church the day before, her husband having made the comment, I'm never going back to that church. And so she's sitting there in an absolute quandary as to what to do next. Of course, I didn't, I didn't, I didn't have a clue that that was going on in her life. I, had, I didn't, didn't know this woman from Eve. I just knew that God was impressing me to talk to her. And I engaged her in conversation. And... Within a few months, after several Bible studies with her and her husband, her husband, Mike, was saved, and we are glad to have Mike and Alice Bear a part of Sailorville Church. The Holy Spirit of God is God's agent for change. We saw last week, if you were with us, that he is God. He's God. He's, the, he's a person. He's a real person. He loves us, just like the Father and the Son loves us. In Genesis 1, he's there at creation. He's involved in creation. As he is involved in the new creation, when a person places their faith in Christ. We don't see him often in the Old Testament, but he's certainly there as well. Certainly, when we come into the New Testament, there he is, the agent of change in Mary's life as he overshadows her. And Jesus Christ is born into this world because of the power of the Holy Spirit overwhelming the Virgin Mary. We see him at the baptism of Christ coming upon Jesus 
And in fact, Jesus never did anything except by the power of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit of God literally drove him into the wilderness to be tempted by Satan. And he will drive us, if we are led by him, into risky circumstances from time to time. The Spirit of God is the one Jesus said would be the one who would come by which we would do greater things because we would all be those of us who have trusted and dwelt by the Spirit of God and thereby empowered by Him to do the work of gospel outreach. And He is the promise that Jesus talked about who would come and teach them, and teach us. He's with you. He's going to be in you which is the promise of the New Testament, the Spirit of God coming to virtually live inside of every individual who places their faith in Christ. And in fact, when you place your faith in Christ, Paul tells us that we are baptized into the Holy Spirit, 1 Corinthians 12, 13. That's everybody who places their faith in Christ. The baptism of the Holy Spirit isn't some separate blessing as some heretically teach. It takes place when you place your faith in Christ. And even before that, he's working in our hearts to to make us come alive because we are dead in our sins until the Holy Spirit comes and makes us come alive, according to John 3, so that we can receive the Lord Jesus Christ as our Savior. The Spirit of God's work in our lives was so evident by the time the Apostle Paul gets to Ephesus and meets a bunch of, a bunch of guys who are following John the Baptist. He says, hey, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you, when you believed on the Lord? And they're going, Huh? We didn't even know there was such a thing. And boom, they believe and the Spirit of God comes upon them. And his power has not changed. He still wants to give us the power that he gave individuals in those earlier days. The Bible commands us to be filled with the Holy Spirit in Ephesians chapter 5. That means to be controlled by him, monopolized, if you please, by him. And when we do that, we begin to produce the fruit of the Spirit that Galatians 5 speaks of. The truth is, the Holy Spirit is involved in in every single aspect of our salvation. Every single one. In fact, if he's not, then you're barking up a different tree. The Spirit of God is absolutely involved in every element and every aspect of our salvation. And as we said last week, if you will place your faith solely in Jesus Christ, plus nothing, then you'll come into a new position, verse 1. You'll be in Christ. You'll be apart from condemnation. No more condemnation. Hallelujah! We're like Noah and family in the ark. God shuts the door. We're safe in Christ. New position in Christ. We, We learned as well that you're subject to a brand new law. The law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus sets us free from the law of sin and death. So we said last week that every one of us have one of those laws, just like right now. Every one of us have the law of sin and death residing in us, and wrath, and separation, and downwardness. Or you have the spirit of life in Christ Jesus, which means growth, and sanctification, and onwardness for Christ. Today, in addition, as we pick it up in verse 5, we'll learn that God, if you'll place your faith in Christ, you'll be given a new mind, the mind of Christ. And you saw it, I purposely emphasized the word five times in verses 5 through 7. Again, for those who live according to the flesh, set their minds 
on the things of the flesh. Those who are of the Spirit set their minds of, on the things of the Spirit. And he repeats himself over and over. The Greek has it four times. Your English Bible has it five times, but it's, it's clearly implied a fifth time. He's, the focus here is on the mind. When you truly place your faith in Christ, God gives you a new mind. This isn't the word mind here is not the word for the physiological brain. It's a different word. It's a word that speaks of our attitudes. It talks about our bent, the way we're bent towards something. It even it sort of involves even our worldview, if you please. It's all changed. In fact, it's the exact same word as Paul said in, in Philippians 2 when he said, let this mind be in you, which is also in what? Christ Jesus, right? And, and the present tense, it means that we are to continually be mindful of these things. And here's the thought. When you place your faith in Jesus, you repent. We say that, right? Repent and believe. The word repent means to change your mind. And when you change your mind, you yourself are changed. And the first part of verse 5 is talking about an unsaved individual, like some of you. You're still locked in to the system that you were born into. You're still bound. You're still earthbound. You can't ascend. You're not a child of God. Your thought process is bent toward the things of the world. If you're an unsaved person, you're always against God and his ways, even though, now listen to this, even though you like the idea of God. Everybody likes the idea of God. I mean, I want God in my life. Yeah, I'll take him. But your mind hasn't been changed. In verses 6 through 8, there's some really strong terminology here. If you are still earthbound, if you are still caught up in the law of sin and death, if your mind hasn't been changed, if you're still mind which is on the flesh, that means, look at these words here, it leads to death, you're hostile to God, you're incapable of submitting to the law of God, and in the end, the mindset of the flesh cannot, verse 8, it cannot please God. And this describes individuals who know about God, but you don't really know God. That's a pretty strange and stark contrast, is it not? This kind of mind unpacks itself by either flatly denying the truth of God or subtly undermining the authority of God's word. Now listen carefully to what I'm about to say. This kind of mind will either flatly deny the truth of God or subtly undermine the truth of God's word by carefully deconstructing carefully taught truths. In the end, time always tells, doesn't it? Have you noticed that? I mean, uh, John wrote in 1 John 2, he said, he, he speaks of these individuals as those who went out from among us, but they were not of us. Have you ever read that? For if they had been of us, they would have remained with us. But they went out that it might be made manifest or self-evident that they were not all of us. That's talking about an individual who has really not repented. Your mind has not actually been changed. And and it, it sort of comes out in the end. The great Bible teacher, James Montgomery Boyce, was profound. Nothing short of profound. When he predicted, he's been dead for over a decade. But he predicted that in the days to come that would follow his life, he said the issue 
The issues in the church would not be the authority of God's word, but the sufficiency of God's word. That is profound. I'll give it to you again. He predicted that there is coming a day, and we're living in it now, where the question would not be the authority of God's word, but the sufficiency of God's word. Let me show you how that unpacks itself. You talk to these individuals and you say, do you believe the Bible's God's word? <laughs> Absolutely, it's the word of God. Do you think it was inspired by God? Oh, yeah. Do you believe in the miracles? Yeah. Do you believe it when, the, when deaf people are given hearing and blind people are given sight, dead people are given? Oh, yeah, I believe it all. Yes, 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 yes. And then you ask them, again, it's, it's very subtle. You declare to them the truth That truth believed and applied trumps medicine that usually just masks your problem. And you go, ooh, what are you talking about here? That acknowledging their sins and repenting of their attitudes and their Christ-dishonoring ways works a lot better than just listening to a bunch of cycle babble and somebody telling you that you're the victim in all of this. And you go, ooh, um, you know, what century are you living in? And you say things like, well, you know, the, the Scripture, the Word of God teaches us what a godly husband's supposed to look like, what a godly wife's supposed to look like, what godly kids are supposed to look like, how you can have harmony and peace in the home. And they say, well, yeah, but, you know, there are other means, you know, that, you know, I don't, you know... Uh, and whatever. And uh, I, said, I had somebody say to me not long ago, they said, well, you know, we, we think we probably should go somewhere else because we, you know, we don't believe in submission like your church teaches. I said, okay, just as long as you know it's not the church that teaches it. It's God who teaches truth, right? So when we read scripture like 2 Timothy 3, where it says all scripture is inspired by God, and it's useful for, for doctrine, for reproof, for correction and instruction in righteousness, that the man of God, the person of God, the person who places their faith in Christ will be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. Have you ever read that? You have, right? So what, you know, how much more do you need if you're complete? How much more equipment do you need if you have if you're thoroughly equipped? And the answer is none. Do you really believe that? Do you really believe that? Peter adds to the chorus when he says, by his divine power, he's given us all things that pertain to life and godliness. Do you believe that? If you find in yourself, you're saying, well, kind of. Then you might be one of those individuals who believe in the authority of Scripture, but you don't believe in its sufficiency. And that's a dangerous place for you to be. Don't take this wrongly. Don't take this wildly out of context. I'm not saying don't go to the doctor. I'm not saying that medicines aren't helpful. But when all they do is mask our problems, you've done nothing for yourself, and you certainly aren't going forward in your sanctification. When God changes a person, he changes our minds. The way we think. He changes our attitudes. He changes, changes our bent. I led an old country bumpkin farmer to Christ years ago, and this guy was in his 70s when he got saved. 
he had a horrible reputation in the community for being a, a petty thief. He was he'd steal anything. And he was just a thief. Everybody, and I talked to several, oh yeah, he was a thief. But he came to Christ, and you know, he was a really big guy. And so, you know, I, I was a little hesitant because kind of, he's real rough around the edges. And, and I hadn't heard any, any thievery going on. He'd been saved for about a year, so I said, hey, normal. Uh, I was told that you uh, used to be kind of a thief. And he looks at me, he goes, I don't think like that anymore. I said, okay. <laughs> he just, with that little line, he just illustrated what it means to repent. His mind was changed. He's a different person. How's your mind? Where does your mind naturally go? Where's it going right now? The Bible says, 1 Corinthians 2, that the natural man, the natural mind, cannot understand the things of the Spirit of God. They are foolishness to him. They're moronic. That's what the word means. He can't understand them because spiritual things are spiritually understood. And look what he says here. He says, the spiritual person judges all things, but he himself is judged by no one. For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. This is what's given to us. Which is very exciting. In the newness of knowing Christ, you're given a new mind. How's yours doing? You'll be given a new spirit, the Holy Spirit. Verses 9 through 11. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. If, in fact, the spirit of you know, God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ doesn't belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness, that applied righteousness of Christ to our lives. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus Christ from the devil, uh, I'm sorry, if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit, who dwells in you. Earlier we were told, and last week, that the unpacking of the person who has the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus is one who walks in the Spirit, Verse the end of verse 4. And whenever the Bible talks about walking, it's just talking about your life, okay? So it's just talking about your life in general, the way you walk, the, the, the places you go, because of your attitude and your mind has been changed, That means your direction has been changed, doesn't it? You think differently, so you go differently. You walk differently. Recently, one of my sons was having a give and take with a friend who claimed to be a Christian and yet was embracing the homosexual agenda and the whole philosophy of the homosexual community. And so we were talking about those things, and he was saying, I was talking to my friend, and the more I brought scriptural truth to bear, the more my friend resisted which left my son wondering, boy, there's a big discrepancy between his claim and his life. Just what does it mean to walk in the Spirit? That's a good question, isn't it? Just what does it mean to walk in the Spirit? Well, at the very least, it means that we're under a new set of controls. Would you agree with that? We're under a new set of controls. And I know... We like to think that we're in control. Any, any control freaks here? The truth is, however, someone is always conducting the controls in our lives. It's never a question of whether somebody's controlling you, but who's controlling you. Describing those of you who are outside of Jesus, 
Look at these eerie words written by the Apostle Paul. He said, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, watch this, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work, where? Where is it at work? In the sons of disobedience. Newsflash, that ain't the Holy Spirit we're talking about here. So if you're not a Christian, your main reason for resisting the gospel might be, well, because I like control of my life. If that's the case, you're living a pipe dream. Remember Billy Joel and his album, Glass Houses? I don't, you know, remember that song? I don't care what you say anymore, this is... My life. Go ahead with your own life. Leave me alone. Aside from the punk attitude that's associated with it, it's, it's simply not true. I hate to be one that tells you, but the spirit in that passage of Scripture is not the Holy Spirit. And that spirit is leading you, and it's evil. It has the smell of death. It follows the course of this world. And it has a leader a prince, no less. You, did you see that? The prince of the power there, you're following him. So if you don't want to submit to the Holy Spirit, that's fine. That's your choice. But make no mistake, you are being led by a spirit. It's just not God's. And just the other day, I was in the home of this couple that was having studies with another couple and just a cool thing going on. There, She was under a lot of conviction. All of this was starting to make sense to her. And the gal says to me, she says, you know, I like control of my life. But she didn't say it like she was proud of it. She said it because she was realizing this is not a good thing, is it? And within just a few moments, she was humbling her heart and placing her faith in Jesus Christ and coming under the control of the greater spirit. Amen? Just how important is the Holy Spirit in you? Well, if you don't have him, you don't have God. Isn't that what verse 9 says? No spirit, no God. You're not his. And the operating word here is life. Where, there is, where the Spirit is, there's life. The Spirit is life because of righteousness. Paul's verbiage here again assumes these people have been saved. But as I read Paul's letters, I sense a mindful apostle under the Spirit's control as he wrote the Word of God that not everyone in his audience was, were Christians. And so you read verses like, it, you know, you, you read Scripture like this, where it says, verse 10, but if Christ is in you, although the body is Dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. Verse 9, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. There is, a, there is an assumption in Paul's verbiage, but not a total assumption. And so, he says in verse 11, if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will give life to your mortal bodies through the Spirit who dwells in you. Here's what he's saying. He is saying that one resurrection leads to another. If you have trusted Jesus, if you will trust Jesus, you will experience a spiritual resurrection which virtually guarantees a physical one later on. Pretty nice, 
And it's a better version than the one we stick in the grave, I'll guarantee you. Why? Because you'll have been given the Holy Spirit of God who works in your life now and will raise you up then. One more thing you should know as we conclude here this morning. You'll be affirmed by new evidence, both evidences, both internal and external. So he says in verse 12, So then, brothers, we're, we're debtors. Not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if we live according to the flesh, if you live according to the flesh, you'll die. But if by the Spirit you put to death, literally keep putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. You remember last week we concluded that message with the balloon illustration. Remember that? The two different laws. The one... The law of the spirit of life, the law of the spirit of death, the one goes down, the other goes up. That's the only way you know whether the spirit of God is living in someone, the direction they're going. Verse 13 is talking about negative changes. Look at this. For if you live according to the flesh, you'll die. But if by the spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you live. These are negative changes. A few weeks ago, as we began this section in Romans 6, I had a guy come up to me. I just talked to him before. This is really encouraging. He said, I'm challenged. I'm challenged by my lifestyle. I'm a heavy smoker. He came to me the next week. He says, I haven't had a cigarette for a week. Praise God, I said. He's still wrestling with that, but God is working in his life. And another guy came to me and said, I haven't had a drink. It's been a couple of months. Praise the Lord. These are negative changes. But God was working in their lives. I never said, stop smoking cigarettes. But God did. Remember, we talked about D.L. Moody, who D.L. Moody so, so loved Charles Haddon Spurgeon, he literally sailed the ocean to sit under Spurgeon at the Metropolitan Tabernacle in London. Spurgeon was the opposite of Moody. He was eloquent. He was educated. And Moody loved to sit underneath him. But when he met him, Moody... Big Moody, you know, looks at Spurgeon. Spurgeon was known for being a big cigar smoker. And uh, the story has it that he had a cigar in his pocket here. And uh, Moody looked at Spurgeon and he poked his finger right at the cigar and says, that don't honor God. But if you know knew Spurgeon, he was always quick. He pointed at Moody's big gut and said, that don't honor God either. Touche. I don't know if Moody ever lost weight, but Spurgeon got rid of the cigars because he saw them as a distraction. But don't miss the point. Here's the point. If the Spirit of God dwells in you, there will be change. I don't have to tell you what those changes are going to be like. God will tell you. You walk with God, and he'll tell you what needs to change. And some of those changes are going to be negative. But don't fool yourself. There's going to be changes. Your attitude is going to change. Some of your habits, some of you are involved in some life-dominating sins, and you know you need to get rid of them because God's telling you, not because we have some placard out there saying, those who enter here shall not drink, shall not smoke. That's just a bunch of hooey. And I don't even know what hooey means. (laughs) 
And in verse 14, it says, all who are led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. This, is, this has got to be one of the most beautiful and yet subjective verses, along with verse 16, which we'll get to next time, in all of Romans 8, isn't it? I mean, if you're led by the Spirit of God, you're a son of God. Now, I don't have too many amazing occurrences in my walk with God where the Spirit of God was like, wow, but I got a few. Like, you know, just, it wasn't just within the first year of being a Christian. I was golfing with this deacon, my, my, my deacon uh, from the church I was in, and, and we'd golf with this guy who was, he was an older gentleman. He wasn't a Christian. And I was a brand new Christian. I was witnessing to everybody whether the Spirit of God was telling me to do so or not. It didn't matter. And I'm witnessing this guy first hole, second hole, third hole, and he is, he's not happy with me because he wants to golf. And I'm sharing, he's not listening. And it was ticking me off. And, uh, but, uh, but I think God just knew my fervency, and he just sort of overlooked my, you know, ignorance, I guess. And uh, this guy was literally underneath a tree. I was standing in the middle of the fairway. I know, which, that's, that's a surprise in and of itself. He was underneath a tree, getting ready to hit. And I, I tell you, as Christ is my witness, this is exactly what happened. You could... Lick your finger and put it in the air. There was not any wind. It was a beautiful day. I'm standing out in the fairway, and I looked at him, and I said, that branch is about to break. You better get out of there. He literally went like this, looked up, walked out in the fairway, snapped. The branch broke and fell down right there. Big branch. I was even surprised. Now, I wish I could tell you that right there he dropped on his knees and placed his faith in Jesus. I can tell you that I had his attention for the next 15 holes. <laughs> Another time I was heading to a vacation Bible school meeting, and I was already late for the meeting. And I drove by this guy whose name was Mark. I used to work with him at Deers. And I saw he's a great guy, good-looking guy, beautiful wife, neat family. And uh, I just, you know, I looked, I looked, I waved as I went by because I was even going fast because I needed to get there. And it was just like, as soon as I went by, it was like God said, go back and talk to him. And I remember thinking, I got to get to this meeting. I only got, I got a couple of blocks up and it's like, oh, I just had, I, I can't, I couldn't explain this impression upon me. I turned the car around, pulled into the driveway, which was in front of me. I said, hey, Mark. Hey, Pat. I said, how's it going? He says, terrible. My wife just left me. I said, wow. Get in the car. Mark came to Christ. Another time, and Sarah will remember this, our oldest daughter. She was only about 12 at the time. I came home early. Uh, and I hardly ever came home early from work, and I never, and I mean I never got the mail. I, I don't remember ever opening the mailbox, and we'd been there a couple of years. As I drove by the mailbox, I thought, I should get the mail. So I pulled the mail out, and there was a letter to Sarah, and it was a beautiful letter. had the little heart stickers on it from a young lady that, was, uh, that we'd been trying to reach their family. It was addressed to Sarah. I saw the return address and knew it was a troubled girl. It even had little shaky things in it, you know. But as I held that letter, I had the most awful feeling come over me. And I had a very powerful sense from God. Don't give Sarah that letter. Open the letter. So I opened the letter. And that diabolical young lady that wrote her this letter wrote the most 
perverse, the most demonic, the most hellish words, cursing and swearing and using the most vile language you could possibly conjure up in your mind, all toward my daughter. It was an absolutely evil letter, and she never saw it. And you can imagine how appalled I was, but can you also imagine the thrill that I had? That God, the Holy Spirit, had led me to leave work early, to do something I never did, to hold a letter that had every reason for me to believe was a nice letter, and he just handed it to my daughter. But to open it up to find that. And I, never, I don't remember ever doing that to any other letter I ever got, any of my kids ever got. Now, I can't tell you that always has been true as I've sensed the Lord's leading. In fact, sometimes I've been led by the Spirit, and I didn't listen to Him. A couple of years ago, I was in the hospital, and here was a person in our church in the ICU. And as I was making my way to that room, the one next to her was a darkened room with three people in it and somebody in the bed. As I walked by that room to go to the room I was visiting, I felt this very, very powerful impression from God to go in that room and talk to them. But I had an agenda. I had some, and I had a place to get to. And I had people from our church I needed to see. And that was important. So I did that. I, I dutifully did that and read the scripture. And as I walked out, I walked by that room again, still feeling, oh, I should go in there. I didn't. I mean, I didn't know him. I, came, I, I made, a, made a determination, though, that night. Lord, I'm going back. Uh, I'm going to go back to visit those folks in our church, and I'll go visit them. But I remember thinking, I just didn't have that same sense. As I walk in to the same ICU, into the same room where our, the, the person from our church was, the other room next door was dark again, but there was no one in there. And that person had indeed died in the night. And I can remember thinking, oh God, never again. God help me, never again. So, what is it like to be led by the Spirit of God? Because as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God, right? The word led, the Greek word means to be led by the hand. So just picture that. Have you ever been somewhere, a very important place even, that um, was a really important place, but you didn't have a guide? Have you ever been to a place like that, and you wished that while you're at this place, you had a guide to sort of tell you about the place? Any, any, anybody ever been in a situation? I have. She was. I'm the only guy here. My wife and I were, my wife and I were, had, had, had about three or four hours to go to Washington, D.C. several years ago. So we were, you know, we were going into these places. We're looking at the Magna Carta. We're looking at the Declaration of Independence. We're looking at our watches. We're going over here. We're looking at pictures. I mean, but no guide. I mean, I would take a Nicolas Cage. And, uh, and, and so, you know, we're looking at these things. And, we, and then the next thing you know, we're in our car. We're headed back. And we're thinking, ugh. We saw so much rich history, but no one there to really tell us about it. About 10 years ago, I 
conducted the first tour of people from Sailorville to Israel, and we had a great trip. Some of you were on that trip. And uh, just a great trip, great guide, wonderful time, trip of a lifetime. And this, then just a couple of years ago, we went again. I took another group. And we went to the exact same places we went to with the first group years earlier. Every time we went to leave the place they were at, I'd look at a guy who was in the group from the first trip years earlier. We would look at each other like, why didn't we learn about this the first time? This guide was so amazing. By the way, we got her again for 2015. That's my plug. Anyway, <laughs> she would reveal things that we never heard the first time. We, we're going to the same places. We're seeing the same things, and we're seeing it with completely different eyes. Our understanding opened up like never before. And the only difference we could conclude was the guide. The guide made all the difference. It's all about the guide. It's all about the guide. If the Spirit of God is in you, He literally takes us by the spiritual hand, if you please, and you see things like you never saw them before. You hear things like you never heard before. You understand things like you never understood them before. And why is that? It's all about the guide. The only question is, is he your guide? Is he in you? If anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, he is not his. But my question, first of all, is where does your mind go? Listen to me. Where does your mind go by default? Is it good? Is it of God? Is it pure? Is it praiseworthy? Is the Holy Spirit even in you? Because if he's not, you're not a child of God. And let's face it, some of you are not children of God. You've never had a time. You're trusting something else. You're trusting your church. You're trusting some ordinance. You're trusting something you've done. But if you're not trusting Jesus and him alone, you can't be saved. That's where salvation occurs, in Christ alone. 